0: The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. We're going to turn our Bibles to the book of Joel. The book of Joel. So find your major prophets and then follow on through the minor prophets. Get to Ezekiel and Daniel. Once you get to Daniel, you're getting close. Hosea and then Joel. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Now, we've addressed uh, some matters in Joel chapter 1, and you might recall that we uh, spoke about two kinds of, what did I call them, plagues that occurred in the uh, nation, or to the nation, that Joel spoke about. One was the plague of locusts, and the other was the drought. In the middle of that section, Joel calls for the people well, maybe God, through Joel, I should say better, calls for the people to uh, repent. And he says, in verse 13 of chapter one, "Gird yourselves and lament you priests, wail, you who minister before the altar, come lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God." For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. We've done some of that tonight, calling out to the Lord on behalf of the nation in which we live. And uh, I'm sure that it would be profitable for us to do yet some more of that. But uh, we've got to reach our people. Our people need to know that judgment is impending and that uh, there's going to be a big trouble for them. If they do not repent, they will perish in their sins, as Jesus said in John chapter 8. But I I mentioned this section on repentance, or the call for repentance rather, because it sits in the middle of the chapter. You have the locust judgment, call for repentance, and then you have the drought judgment or plague. Chapter 2 is similarly structured. You have a mention of the day of the Lord in verses 1 through 11. And an army comes. And so what I've done is I've put this as a third plague in my outline so that it really connects with chapter 1. And then, in the middle of chapter 2, you have, guess what? A call for repentance again. Look at verse 12. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, And then, that runs all the way down through verse 17. And then verse 18 of chapter 2 picks up what I believe to be a far future prediction of, well, look at verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for His land and pity His people. The Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil and you will be satisfied with them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Now, it's evident that that's not happening today and has really not happened much at all in history, uh, ever. I mean, perhaps during the reigns of David and Solomon, Israel was highly respected, but very little since then, and certainly before then. So, plague, call for repentance, plague. Then chapter 2, plague, call for repentance, and then restoration. And then chapter 3, is really all about the future, far future, like chapter 2.18 through the end is, but this is about the judgment of God on the nations. And you can see that if you look in chapter 3 and verse number 1. And behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They also have divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy as a payment, so on and so forth. So you have uh, a bunch of far future stuff going on here in in chapter 3 and the end of chapter 2. But I get ahead of myself. I'm trying to do that kind of overview just to let you know what Joel is all about. Now, he's detailed locusts and drought. They devastated the nation of Israel. The third plague is the destruction by an army. The third plague is the destruction by an army. And that's our first point this evening. I'm going to ask the question and answer it. Does chapter 2 describe a human army or a locust army? Let's read it and see. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Chapter two says, And sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the Lord I'm sorry, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there be any nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. You see that picture there? You have a wonderful lush vegetation before they come, and then when they roll through, they just destroy everything. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble. Imagine that, would you? Have you ever heard a loud fire? A loud fire. The loudest, probably probably the loudest kind of fire I've heard is in a huge bonfire. I mean... You know, I'm not talking about a little pile of sticks. I'm talking about a huge pile of sticks, brush. But you can imagine a forest fire. Some have described it. Maybe you could look it up online and see what does the forest fire in California sound like when you are nearby to it? Certainly, what does it smell like? What does it look like? Okay, um, so the noise of a flaming fire. Like a strong people set in battle array. Before them, the people writhe in pain, All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before His army, for His camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes His word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Who can endure it? Okay, so what do we do with this section of Scripture? There's some similarities here between the descriptive language in chapter 1 about the locusts and that in chapter 2. For example, if you look in verse 3, you see um, it talks about they, there's the word devour, and there's the desolate wilderness, which we saw something like that in chapter 1 with the locusts. And so this leads some interpreters to understand the chapter to be continuing the locust theme of chapter 1. Locusts are a prominent tool of covenant judgment. Remember, God said, if you obey, I will bless you to the nation of Israel. That doesn't exactly apply today. Not exactly. But He said, if you disobey, I will curse you. If you disobey, I will curse you. And how? I will do it various ways, He promised. Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 16. One of them was by locusts to eat up their crops. Also, you have the language of of simile. Look at verse 4. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run, with a noise like chariots. Verse 7. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war, and so on. So the language of simile is used, and they would suggest, I say they, the people who support this as a continuation of the locust idea, would say this is not a human army. This is a locust army which is spoken of with language that seems perhaps like it could be a a human army, but they say it's not. But I'll give you my view, which is that this is a literal human invading force. There are several arguments in favor of that. Number one, foreign invading armies are also common tools that God used in covenant judgment. So just because locusts are mentioned in chapter one and Deuteronomy 28 doesn't mean that's that's locusts here. Um, so God used uh, these in uh, many places, nations to judge them. Uh, and let me just—I'll share a couple of them with you. I don't want to drown you with details here, but uh, maybe it's helpful to see that God does promise to use nations in judgment, Deuteronomy 28:25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Also in Deuteronomy 28, verse 32, it says, Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all day long. There shall be no strength in your hand. A nation whom you have not known shall eat the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually. And there are other verses in Deuteronomy 28. Um, there is the one verse in Deuteronomy 28, 38 that talks about locusts, but that's not in the section about nations here. Uh, there are also verses that talk about drought in Deuteronomy 28, verses 23 and 24 if you're interested. 28, 23, and 24. The upshot of all this is that God promised to judge the nation of Israel with drought sometimes, with locusts sometimes, and with armies sometimes. So uh, we're in the section, I think, of Joel that's saying, okay, now you're going to get the third you know, whack. And I whacked you once with locusts, I whacked you again with a drought, and I'm going to whack you a third time with this army situation. Uh, both locusts and armies also have similarities in that they, they eat up the fruit of the land What does an army do? Well, they need food, right? So they eat up everything in sight. or They burn everything down before them so it looks like a locust kind of went through. Notice verse number 2. It says in the second second half of the verse, it talks about the day of darkness, gloominess, all that. A people come, great and strong. These are people, not bugs. Okay? I probably could add a couple of other arguments. One would be that we've already left the locusts behind. We we moved on to drought, so the drought intervenes, and it's not necessary that we restart locusts again. So we're starting a new section. Um, I could also uh, say uh, that the the uh, army in verse twenty. Look at verse twenty. Look at verse 20. I will remove far from you the northern army. Does your Bible say that? Northern army? 20. Northern army. I'm interested in another non-New King James translation. Anybody have... The northerners. Okay, yeah. The, The difficulty with that... Uh, not that and that translation, but with this whole idea of the northern something, is that typically the locusts would come from the south or the southwest. So uh, that's kind of a strike against this view of locusts here, and in favor of my understanding of a regular army of people. Uh, also, you have the um, the issue of the the uh, Formation of this army. Do you remember reading how they uh, they march in formation? They do not break ranks. They do not push one another. They lunge between the weapons. It sounds like um, this is anachronistic now, but it sounds like the Roman army—you know, shield to shield, shoulder to shoulder, just pushing right through and destroying everything in front of them. They're not veering from their mission. Their mission is to stay in line and And uh you know do their battle that way. I haven't seen locusts fly in such a uh, orderly fashion. That would be weird if they did, but I haven't seen that. so uh, that would be uh, an argument in favor of a human army. And then finally the the Old Testament uses locusts in the likeness of an army. and in, in other words, the opposite of what this this view is saying that the army is, The, you know, the likeness of locusts, but here it's the reverse. Locusts are the likeness of the army. We saw in chapter one that chapter one was real locusts like an army. Chapter two speaks of a human army that has some characteristics like locusts. I know I probably got us all turned around there in what I just said, but, uh, look at, uh, if you can find it, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Look at Nahum chapter three, verse Now, speaking in a military context now. And uh, Nahum is. And he says, There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. Okay, the sword. That's a giveaway there. We're talking about a military conflict. It will eat you up like a locust. So the army is like the locust, not the locust like an army. Make yourself many. Like the locusts. Make yourself many like the swarming locusts. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. Your commanders are like swarming locusts. And your generals like great grasshoppers which camp in the hedges on a cold day. What happens when the sun rises on those guys? You know, they're they're there. It's kind of cool out. They don't move too well. But when the sun rises and they warm up, boom, they're gone. Okay, so... Uh, the Bible uses the figure of locusts to describe an army and its, some of its movements. Now, uh, so I've made the case, I've given you, I think, seven reasons why I think this is a human army. What are the characteristics of this army? Well, they're, they're spr- sprinkled throughout verses 2 through 10. And I my notes, I didn't, I didn't write all these out. I just kind of left it to us to let our eyes scan down through the text and to see. Think of the fearsome people. You do not want to be in a military conflict. Let's just put it out there. It is too awful to even think about. And especially if you're a civilian with little defense, these people are great and strong. Nobody has seen an army like these. This is probably the Assyrian army, is what it is talking about, I believe. But there's another issue that we have to address about that. Um, it's like there's a fire before them, after them, they are like swift steeds, loud noise, chariots. They leap over the mountains. You know, this is blitz, blitzkrieg, if you will. Uh, they're strong people. Listen to verse six. Before them, the people writhe in pain. This is a terrible circumstance. This is a this is war. There's no nothing good about war. Uh, the faces are drained of color. You know, talk about total abject fear. You're going to die momentarily. These people are going to come and get you. They run like mighty men. They climb. They march. They don't break ranks. They push. They don't. I mean, they don't push one another. They push ahead. Uh, they march in their own column. They're not cut down. They run. They run. They climb. They enter like a thief. You can imagine, you know, an army of ten thousand, twenty, thirty, a hundred thousand marching in time. What does that do to the earth? Vibrations. The earth quaking. Everything's dark. Uh, and I don't know about the. You know, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about the nature of the heavenly disturbances here. We'll see plenty of those in uh, chapter later, in chapter two, and in chapter three as well. Uh, picturesque of the darkness of the day. There's nothing good about it, and uh, so that's the characteristic of the army. We've I've alluded to also the fear that comes before this army. All of their devastating actions raise alarm. And the day of the Lord is so terrible. Look at the end of verse 11. Who can endure it? Now, we'll come to a, a question next about the timing of this and the relation of this to the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? But can I kind of jump past that question or maybe ignore it for a moment and just... Remind you that the day of the Lord generally speaks about a time in which God is active in judgment and then in blessing, in that order. And whenever that is, whenever God is active in judgment, you could say it is a day of the Lord. It's a day of the Lord's activity. It's great and terrible when God judges. It is a fearful to fall into the hands of the living God. Our God is a consuming fire. He is holy. He is just. He gives people what they deserve. Most people don't want what they deserve. Most people want mercy. There is a place to find mercy, of course, and that's in Christ Jesus. But if you don't find it there, you will not find it anywhere else. And the Scripture says about this time of judgment, who can endure? Who can endure it? Everybody's going to face that at some point or another somehow. And if you are wise and realize I'm not going to be able to endure the day of God's wrath and I need to get an advocate for me so that uh, He can take take that for me. And that's what we do when we come to Jesus Christ. He becomes our advocate. We, as it were, enlist Him in our cause, and He will save us. He who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No one will be brought to shame uh, who calls on the name of the Lord. But apart from Him, this is absolute. Who can endure it? The answer is no one. It's too terrible. It's great and very terrible. The prophet says, "This day of the Lord, whether it's historical, whether it's future, uh, who can endure it?" And uh, uh, whoops, you don't want to. You don't want to think about that. You don't want to try to think I'm going to endure it because it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Now there's some more detail here. I'm going to trouble you with hopefully not trouble you with but the the all that i've said there is just kind of generic about the day of the lord purposefully so because any time that god judges it looks similar to whenever he judges past present or future i mean if you look at all the judgment passages in the bible whether it was historical or whether it's in the future what's the difference what's the difference in result not much people die you know, people are 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 lost, judged, cast into Hades if they're apart from the Lord, and all of that. So, whether it's then or now, doesn't really matter. But there is a question as to what is this that that Joel is talking about. Is this army going to come in the near term to Joel when he prophesied before Christ? Uh, you know. Uh, before 722 BC, 800, maybe it was 800 BC or whenever it was. Is it going to come soon to them, or is he speaking only of something that comes in the far future? And this is inextricably, this question, inextricably linked to the issue of whether the day of the Lord is spoken of here as if it's either near or far off, or both, perhaps. It seems that, to this reader anyway, to me, that the beginning of the book speaks of near-term events, locusts and drought. Well, the end of the book speaks of the future restoration of Israel. Okay, So you've got near-term events to begin, far-term events to end the book. So where's the transition? You know what I'm saying? If you go from A to Z, you've got to get to letter M in there somewhere. Okay, so You've got to get through the middle. You've got to make a transition from beginning to end. So where is that transition? Somewhere in chapter two, 1 or 2 or 3 there has to be a transition. Now some interpreters take it that uh, chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 is fulfilled in the Assyrian captivity. I'm favorable to that view. Even though it talks about a day of the Lord. Hang with me here now. We're probably not going to get through all of this tonight. No, we won't. But uh, we'll start it and then review it again next time. The question is, again, what is this day of the Lord? When you read about the day of the Lord, is it something that you can just say, ah, that's in the past. I don't have to worry about it. Or is it something that's only coming in the future and you get terrified about that? Or is it a combination or something like that? So, what is this day of the Lord? Now, that's So, Walverd says the text we've read has already been fulfilled, Assyrian captivity. MacArthur locates the transition between the... Near Fulfillment and the Far Fulfillment in this very area of the text from 2.1 through 17. And here's how it sounds like his notes in the study Bible address the issue. It sounds like he's saying this is a transition that addresses both past and future at the same time. Okay, Um, And that is a common view that uh, some people hold. Compton at the seminary locates the transition at chapter 2 and verse 1. So he's saying immediately at chapter 2-1, it moves us into the far future. That's the day of the Lord. Okay, And Compton is very strict that there is only one day of the Lord in the Bible. That's future. So from 2-1 forward is fulfilled exclusively in the future tribulation, he says. Now, far as I'm concerned, I take the transition to be at 2:18. All the stuff up to that is past. So Walverd is is fine, I think, in this. And I would add verses 12 to 17 to what he has said to say that's all past. 2:18 talks about the future restoration of Israel. Now, could I be wrong? Sure, I'll find out later. But uh, I'm not going to sweat it at the moment because. I'm looking at it as best I can and trying to and, and you know I'm not hardly going to be in bad company if I'm with Walford MacArthur or Compton right uh, all those guys are esteemed uh, instructors in God's word so uh, you, you can't say all three of them are right at the same time because it's just not possible the law of non contradiction doesn't allow you to do that so I understand the transition is fairly abrupt at 218 the prophet begins to see afar off into the future and uh the call for repentance in 2.12-17 is connected to the past. Let me, let me try to justify that to you a little bit now. If the day of the Lord is coming and um, it's 3,000 years in the future from the perspective of the prophet, it doesn't seem to me to make a good reason for the people to repent. Now, if they don't know when it is and it's imminent, it could be at any moment, then it could be a good reason for them to repent. Does that make sense? Let me, let me say it a, a different way. Um, the day of the Lord is at hand. It says in chapter 2, verse 1. That means there's an urgency attached to this. You should repent now, people, because the day of the Lord is coming soon. Now, it may not be for a few years or a couple decades, but a few decades maybe, but it's close and you need to pay attention. But if it's 3,000 years away, why are you going to call a sacred assembly now? Why are you going to have the priests weeping now? What's the big worry? What's the big hurry of this uh, when this army is not going to come for 3,000 more years? So the day of the Lord being at hand is the key thing. That makes this, I think, have to be a near fulfillment for the people in Joel's day. It's near at hand. He says that in a number of places. Um, three, uh, three, let's see, three Fortwell. Actually, that's another issue altogether. Um, but you see, it's near at hand in chapter one, the day of the Lord. You see, it's near at hand in chapter two. Um, And so you have this nearness, this urgency. Now, I will admit there are a couple issues that weigh against this idea. For example, look at verse number 2. End of verse 2. The like of whom has never been, nor will there be ever any such after them. Now that seems to suggest that this is a like a last judgment. There's never going to be anything after this. So it seems like it's pushing it to the end times. I can understand that. Except at the very end of 2, it says even for many successive generations. So I'm wondering if he's saying there's going to be something really bad that happens and it's not going to happen again for a very long time, but it could well happen again after many successive generations. And... If this is the Assyrian captivity, something very bad happened then, and it's now been how many generations since then? Lots of generations, right? And then something is going to happen in the far future. Um, So the day of the Lord is at hand. A key, key kind of argument. This urgency led for the call to immediately blow the trumpet, to call for a national meeting, Chapter 2, verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders. The day of the Lord was so near that something has to be done now. So it doesn't seem like a good motivation to have a far off day of the Lord for a near term urgency to this matter. Now, I'll just end with this um, little hermeneutical issue. When you read the Bible... Uh, when we read interpreters of the Bible, you'll see they say this idea that, well, it could be the answer to this conundrum, near or far, is not near or far, it's near and far. So that under the same, same set of words, it's a reference to two different events. Now, I don't accept that kind of school of, of thought in terms of interpretation as if the prophet mixed and matched two different events under one set of words. This is why prophecy is sometimes difficult to understand. It almost seems like well, it could be both events. You know, It could be the near-term Assyrian captivity and the far-term work of the Antichrist or something. Um, but more likely it's is the case that a prophecy of a near-term event can foreshadow or be used as an analogy for a later event. Foreshadow or be an analogy of a later event. This is because the nature of divine judgment in one era is basically the same as the nature of divine judgment in any era. So if God tells you about a judgment that happened 500 years ago, and then He tells you about a judgment that's going to happen 2,000 years from now, you can say, boy, those are very similar. That's because divine judgment is very similar. (laughs) It doesn't matter when it is because God's consistent. And in turn, because God is unchanging, uh, and, and, sorry, and this in turn is because God is unchanging, and, and though the extent or devastation of the judgment may be different from a local viewpoint, it basically looks the same when God brings calamity on a people or a city or a region. And I take it that most biblical prophecies are quite specific. What I mean by that is they're not Nostradamus-like, um, predictions. I make a distinction between prediction and prophecy. Okay, you know, I predict that the weather, or I predict that, you know, the Lions will not win the Super Bowl. Or, well, that's, that's actually a prophecy, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I, that's, so that's prediction is like, you know, me pontificating about something. But a prophecy is something that's certain to come to pass because God has said it and God has decreed it to occur. Okay, So, no, I, I could be false about the Lions. They could win the next Super Bowl if there ever is a Super Bowl again. Uh, and so my prediction would be incorrect. Um, but we don't have a special revelation from God on that subject. So we have to just wait and find out later. So their prophecies are specific. And they're, they usually point to a particular time of fulfillment. Even though, if, even if we can't tell the year, day, or hour of that fulfillment, we can kind of tell. Look, the day of the Lord is at hand. Something bad's about to happen. You people need to repent. And it looks like this is the Assyrian captivity. Okay. So that's how I take that um, that view. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a little marker in my notes here and say we'll pick up on this next time. Because uh, I'm out of time and I'm only halfway through my notes. So, uh, not quite actually. But it's good stuff. So, um, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank You for Your prophets. There is a lot here in these three small chapters that takes some, quite some digesting. And I pray that You would help us to digest it to some extent, Lord. Certainly, Maybe not everybody can have as clear in their mind as what I have spending the hours that I have studying, but at least we have a basic idea of the covenant chastisement, locusts, drought, armies, and the urgency of the need to repent from sin and idolatry in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.